Welcome, everyone, to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Hi, everyone. This is Ray McKinley. Welcome again to Ride the Elephant Today, our weekly podcast. And with me today, I'm very excited to invite my son, Blake, onto the podcast with me because we have a long personal history, of course, and Blake runs my dental practice now, and he is here to say a few words and have a conversation with me today. So, Blake, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about why you're here. Thank you for having me. My name is Blake, and I'm, as Dr. McKinley said, uh, sorry, I called my dad Dr. McKinley a lot because that's what I call him here at the office, but uh, dad invited me to, to do the podcast. And I said I would do it because I've been going through this material with our team. I I had the opportunity to go through a book mastermind with a mentor of mine, and it was a great experience, and I thought it was something that we could do as a team here at the dental office. And when I was considering books to do, Ride the Elephant came up, and we're going through it together as a team, and we read the chapters and discuss it and really apply it to the dental practice, of course, but our personal lives as well. So that's what I've enjoyed about the most recent part of of reading Ride the Elephant. Great. Well, thanks, Blake. And one of the things that we hope you do as a listener is connect with the book, Ride the Elephant by Ray McKinley. can be picked up at uh, Amazon, and you can follow along with us in some of the discussions we have here as we move forward. So, Blake, in the book, what was the first thing that you came across that intrigued you that you wanted to have a conversation about? Well, as I was going through the book, very early on in the book, and in, anybody who does read the book will find that the first few chapters are very engaging, and there's some very interesting ideas that come up. One of those chapters is the tension within, which is early on in the book and talks about the brain and the ideas that we have in our brain and how it can create a feeling that's difficult to describe even. Some people call it an anxiety. Some people call it a nervousness. But you call it the tension within. Now, I was really interested in the words that you use to describe the different decisions you make according to what's happening in the brain. And I didn't find those in the dictionary or even on Google. So I was wondering if you could tell me more about where those words came from. Are they made up words? Has somebody told you about those words and you adopted them? Because I can't find any history of them being used ever. Well, I think it's important that we all recognize, first of all, I put this early on in the chapter in the book because I wanted to create context for the reader. So that they would recognize that as they read through this material, sometimes we read books and we hear them as being suggestions from the author that we need to employ in our lives. And I didn't want to be one of those authors that I said, I know in your life you should do this and you should do that and you need to do this and you need to do that. What I wanted to start was with the recognition that there's a tension within all of us. And an example of the tension would be, and I talk about this in a story, 
in the book. And the story I talk about is the story of Sue, who goes off to college. You know, she's made it a personal decision to not have sex before marriage. Some people make that decision. Some people, they don't. No judgment. She just made the decision. She went off to college and found herself in a relationship that was very meaningful. And she started, the feelings started to come across her, the physical feelings of love and wanting to connect with her partner. And she was considering maybe she might have sex before she gets married. So she has this tension exist within her of this principle that she's had her whole life. I'm not going to have sex before I get married. And then this emotive feeling she has of warmth and love and the tingling feeling. And now what is she going to do with this tension that exists between this emotive feeling and this principle or value she's decided on early in her life that she still carries to this day? And if she makes the decision to succumb to the physical feelings that she's having now, how is she going to feel about leaving that personal commitment that she made? So what that means, Blake, and another way of saying that is, is that that story reveals or reflects the beliefs, values, and principles that exist in our mindset that cause us to respond in every situation in our life. So if we just take that sentence backwards and look at it differently and say, Every situation in our life stems from, emanates from a belief and a value and principle. And oftentimes the values and principles come from our beliefs. So basically you can say that any actions that we take or any situation we respond to, we only have to go back and look at the core belief that caused us to respond that way. Well, my experience has been when I've asked people to go back and look at that core belief, they really have a tough time doing that. They just don't get it. What do you mean a core belief? What core belief could possibly cause me to respond the way I'm responding? If I'm responding with anger, if I'm responding with hate, or I'm responding to say I'm going to do this and not do that. I have to make a choice between going to my grandma's birthday party or the football game on Saturday. With all these choices and decisions that we make always fall back to a core belief that we have. So what I found in teaching this material over the years was when I got people to understand that there's three parts of the brain that are in conflict and create this tension. And one part is the limbic part of the brain. The limbic part of the brain is that part of the brain that is responsible for the emotive feelings that we have. The other part of the brain is the hippocampus. The hippocampus is that part of the brain that is our memory. We remember all the things we've had happen in our life. They're our habits. They're what we've always done. In this situation, I've always done that. So now when I'm in that situation. Now I'm going to do what I've always done, which is typically what we do. Well, that's our hip position telling us, hey, this is what you've always done. So now it's time to do that again. And you just say, okay, and you go along with it because you've always done it. Well, that's your hippocampus causing that decision. That's where I got the word, hip decision. It's the hippocampus affecting the decision. Mm -hmm. 
Now, if it was the loving feeling and the emotive feeling I had and feeling in love, the tingling feeling I had in my body around my partner in a intimate setting, I would then find myself allowing the limbic part of the brain to determine what I do, and that's a limb scission. Again, combining a feeling that leads to the decision from the limbic part of the brain, I call that a limb scission. So that's the core of the two words, limb scission and hip scission. And those two are in conflict. The interesting thing about that is is the third center of the brain that always comes in and operates, whether we want it to or not, and it's the prefrontal cortex. So there's a third word I've created, core scissions. And these are the decisions that come from our mindset through thinking, just thinking about it, critically thinking it through, and saying, hey, this is the best thing to do in this situation. You might think, well, I don't know what to do. Maybe I'm going to go talk to my girlfriend about this or go talk to my parents about this or talk to somebody else, a wise counsel about this. And you then start talking about it through with another person. And then with that other person, you guys kind of come to a conclusion through your prefrontal cortex process that this is the way you're going to go. It may be in conflict with your core scission or your limb scission. It may be in conflict with your hip scission. So, however, this tension that exists between the three decision centers of the brain really causes us to respond the way we do. Now, you might ask, why is that valuable? The value that brings is when you start having conversations and start thinking about why do I always do this this way? Why, when this situation happens, do I always respond in this way? Well, if you keep asking yourself that question, that's a great question, by the way. Why do I respond the way I do in the situation? Then a lot of people just are blank. They can't come up with an answer. Well, I'm encouraging you through these three concepts to look at the emotive feelings, the the limb scission, look at what you habitually have always done, your hip scission, and then process it through your prefrontal cortex, your core scission. And with those three, you'll come to a conclusion. I find that when the three centers of the brain are really encouraging you to do the same thing, you have harmony in your life. As long as the three I call them the three tricisions, the three decision centers of the brain. As long as they're in conflict, you're going to have tension. You're going to have stress. You're going to be in conflict. You're not going to know what to do. You're going to go to somebody else and have them tell you what to do because you don't know what to do. And instead of you being operating on your core beliefs that are deep inside of you, you are now letting other people influence your decision by what they think you should do. So, Blake, how is that? Or an explanation for you? Or what comes up for you when I go through that? That all makes sense. So it's a portmanteau. That's what it is. It's a combination of two different words to give a new meaning. Yes. Like the classic one is brunch. Breakfast and lunch? Yeah. Brunch. So you're combining two words to give a new meaning. That makes sense. Exactly. Part of two words. Part of two words, right. Yes. Because I think it gives a great understanding to the dilemmas that our mindset goes through as we make the decisions in our life and choices in our life. Now that you have this information, have you seen in the workplace, in the relationships and managing other people here, have you seen this tri-decision model play out? And how has that knowledge helped you manage the team? So 
it's true in dentistry, and I think it's true in a lot of industries that many times we get in the habit of doing things. And the way that we do things is rote. And the classic phrase is, when you ask, well, why do you do it that way? The answer is, because we've always done it that way. I have tried to come up against that belief in our dental practice. I've always tried to attempt new things because sometimes even though you're doing something because that's the way you've always done it, something doesn't feel right. So that feeling part of the brain is saying, you know, yes, this is how we've always done it, but it feels like we could do it better. So having that mindset, I think, has served me well professionally, and I think it served our practice well in our patients. I also noticed it individually among the team members as we're going through this and as we're studying it as a group and they have new awarenesses. So we're fortunate to have members on our team who are here for the right reasons. I believe that everybody here on our team is here because they care about people and they care about health and they care about taking care of people. So we're very fortunate to have those type of people here. And I think it's interesting when we talk about a concept, how it falls into this tension within. When maybe we're presented with a new technique or a new awareness, it could be clinical, it could be interpersonal, where it kind of brings up that question, well, maybe I'm not doing everything I can to serve the patient best. So having the resources and even the language to talk about that tension that exists to move yourself, if you desire, to move yourself into a new behavior, a new habit, because something doesn't feel right. The answer that, well, we do it this way because we've always done it, that doesn't work anymore. This model can help you kind of move past that and, like you said, start to ask those questions. Why do I believe that? Why did I do that? And what am I going to do in the future? You know, that brings up a great memory for me. When I was teaching this material, I taught this material, the concepts in the book, this tension within concept, in the high school to seniors as they were leaving school. And one of the reasons I was motivated to go to the schools and teach was because I felt the young people coming into the workplace today were clueless and just weren't prepared to really help us in a significant way, mainly because they really didn't know what they wanted. They came out of an environment that they were enabled, they were taken care of, they weren't self-directed as they needed to be. So I became frustrated with that. So I went back into the schools and said, hey, we need to teach these young people coming into the workforce some things to help them be more helpful. And one of the things I asked the students was, do you feel that you guys are good decision makers? You guys make good decisions. And I was shocked by the answer. Every class I taught, no, we're terrible at decision-making. We don't know how to make a decision. We actually don't make decisions. Our parents make the decisions for us. We don't even make our decisions. And by their own self-awareness, they were terrible decision-makers. And I thought, wow, you know, that's a crippling belief to think you're not a good decision-maker. So one of the things I was determined to do, and when I investigated it further, I started to see this tension play out. And there was three aspects of the tension. This is what I want to do, but this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I feel like doing, but this is what I know I need to do. 
If I don't do this, I'm going to get in trouble for this. This constant tension that existed in the young adult caused me to say, you know, I have to break this down. And being a dentist, you know, we do a lot of dissecting in the mouth. And a lot of you remember dissecting in the biology class. And one of the things we did in dissection was to cut down pieces into smaller components and smaller parts. And so I said, I'm going to dissect this decision-making process that they're struggling with and give them some clues on what they can do to break their pattern, break their old belief that they're lousy decision-makers. And I really found that dissecting this with the three decision modules, the limb scission, the hip scission, the core scission, the kids really got it. And you know what? And they really liked the thought of creating a new word. They liked the thought of creating a new thought about that. So we really elevated our ability to make them better decision makers. And I think that's one of the things that you've done, Blake, very well in this office, is when you see someone struggling with their decision making or the stress they're under in making their decision, you then start looking at them instead of saying, come on, make a decision and just disqualify them or get angry at them or say something curt to them, you break it down into three components. And when you break it down into three components, you can start having a better conversation with the person than you can have if you don't. If you had an experience where you've done something like that, where you've taken their decision and you backed it off and said, let's go back and talk about this. First of all, how do you feel about it? What have you always done? And what does your mind say that you should do about it? When you start having that conversation, what happens with that person? Well, with patients, let's say that they need something to be done dentally. Many times, they don't tell you right up front why they're hesitating to do it. Many times, we assume it's money. Many times, they act like they're fearful or afraid of the treatment itself. But you never really can know until, like you said, you break it down. And the way to do that, I found with patients, is to ask more questions, to have that conversation. So if they say something that, you know, they're afraid, they don't know if that's something that they can sit in the chair for, they might need to be put to sleep, I think is probably one that we hear the most. I need to be put to sleep for my dentistry. Well, tell me more about that. Was there an experience that you had? Oh, yeah. You know, when I was five years old, I had to have a tooth taken out and it was awful. You know, they had to hold me down in the chair and they are reliving this experience from when they were five years old. Well, in many situations, putting them to sleep is really more than is over treatment when they need something relatively simple like a filling or a crown or something like that. So by processing through that, you can find out, you know, well, would you be willing to try this? If we did this, would this make you more comfortable? And you can break it down, find out exactly where are the pain points for them. And we've turned around people from saying that they were shaking in the chair, they couldn't go through without being put to sleep. And within a couple of appointments, they're coming in smiling, laughing, they have no fear of the dentist anymore. So really, like you said, breaking it down can get through those pain points quickly. I mean, some it takes more time and some people only go so far. But many times using that process of breaking it down, finding out exactly 
what it is that causes a patient to feel or respond the way that they're responding can help them move forward. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's a great example. And I watched patients over the years as we've been able to break down this precision component and really find out where they're at in their fear. And, you know, it's a great laboratory. Fear of the dentist is pretty universal. A lot of people would rather go anywhere else than come to the dentist. However, when we really work through this with people, then they end up becoming our friends. They end up becoming people that trust us. They trust their decisions. They're more confident. They feel better about themselves. They don't get themselves all stressed out and anxious. And the experience becomes very edifying for everyone. And it's really amazing to me when we look at the model and experiences we had in the office, Blake, that we then go out into our life, our real world, and we apply it there. Can you think of a situation where you've applied that concept to something else in your life, not related to work, but something else personally? Well, I've been exposed to this material for a long time. So I've adopted a lot of of this decision-making model. And for me, especially my age group, I hear a lot that I'm indecisive. That's what a lot of people my age like to say. And it could be as significant decision as getting married or a career change or something as insignificant as where they're going to have lunch. But the feeling is that I'm indecisive. I can't make a decision. My personal strategy for counteracting that has been simply to make my decision good. So whatever it is that I decide to do, I own it. I take responsibility for it. And the outcome of that decision is something that I am going to be responsible for. I mean, that might be a leap for some people, but for me, just saying like, okay, this is a decision I have to make. The outcome of it is the one that I'm going to live with. And moving forward from that is something that I've been able to do being exposed to this material. Yeah, that's great. You know, another thing that, you know, I mentioned before a little early that ties into this, Blake, and that's about beliefs, values, and principles. And the beliefs, values, and principles is a follow-up chapter to this because I want to create some context for what we're talking about because what I'm looking at here, when I really start having these belief conversations with people and people start sharing their core beliefs, it's amazing to me how many of their beliefs that they operate out of are not even true. And they don't even think about them being untrue. They don't question whether they're true or untrue. They just continue to operate as if they're true and never change. So one of my challenges is always, even with patients and with friends and family, even the way I raised you, was when you made a decision And I always would look and say, based on the decision you're making, based on the situation you're in, based on how you're responding to this, what is the core belief that's causing you to respond the way you do? What's interesting is how many times that is untrue, but we never look at it. And I think one of the things that I've done here is really ask the reader to question whether the beliefs they're operating on are even true. Sometimes they're all afraid to do that. Why do you think we're afraid to admit that a belief that we might have might be untrue? It could be a prejudice. It could be a response to 
something really bad that happened in our life when we were a young kid, like you said. When those kind of things happen, they're true maybe when you're five years old, but they're true today. And sometimes we never really reflect on that. I think one of the things therapists do is they focus on looking back at some of those beliefs that you take on at a young age and start asking you at an older age, now that you're an adult, why would you still feel that way about that? Can we look at that situation, replay that situation, and maybe come up with a different belief than we had before? Have you had any experience with that? Or do you have any awarenesses that you had as a result of the statement, the beliefs, values, and principles built into your life determine how you respond in every situation? Yeah, when I think of beliefs, values, and principles, especially beliefs, they're kind of mental shortcuts. If we had to do the work of establishing how we're going to respond in every situation in real time, if we had to factor in all the everything that factors into that decision in real time, it would be mentally exhausting. To use the example of what you're going to have for lunch, you know, to think about, well, you know, how many calories have I consumed so far today? And you know, what's my blood type and what did I have for lunch yesterday? And, you know, what's my blood pressure to take into consideration all of these things would be mentally exhausting. So many times we adopt beliefs. And in this instance, it might be a simple one, as simple as I don't eat meat or I'm going to have a salad today or I'm on a diet. So we adopt that type of simple belief as a mental shortcut so we don't have to go through the mental work every time. And that's true for, I believe, every decision that we make, is that we're using our beliefs, we're using our values, we're using our principles as mental shortcuts. So if you're going to use a shortcut, it better be good. It's better that it gives you the outcome that you want. So when you throw in a belief into there, this mental shortcut that's gone haywire, like, for example, you know, I had a bad experience at the dentist, well, this belief that you're going to have pain every time you go to the dentist, you aren't even going in for a cleaning. Right. If you go in for a cleaning, you're not going to have pain for most people, especially if you go regularly. But because they had pain when they were five years old, they haven't had their teeth cleaned in 30. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of a belief really causing the mental shortcut that has caused the system to go haywire. Interesting way of looking at it. I like that. You know, one of the things that we I talk about, and it's a word that maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with, but it's the word amphora. And, you know, when you think of a word like love, there's a lot of people who have different definitions of the word love. You know, they might feel love of their feeling for their cat or their love for a child or their love of a parent. It could be the love for God. It could be the love for tennis. You know, everyone has a different amphora or different meaning to that word. So I find, Blake, that when we start looking at the amphora of a word, what is our understanding of that word? It comes from our beliefs. Mm -hmm. And the beliefs that we have that lead to our definition for a specific word is different than the beliefs another person has that leads to their definition for the word. However, we make a very large presumption, and we assume that everyone thinks the same way we do. How could they have the same thoughts that we do and just think the same way unless their personal histories were identical? 
Now, there are many times our personal histories are similar. So many of the beliefs that we come up with are the same from one person to the next. But even you with your five siblings, you have different beliefs than the other siblings. With my 11 siblings, we all had different beliefs. Yes, there's some commonality, but we all have different amphora for different words. So what do you say about that word? When you first heard of the word amphora, what did that mean to you? Tell us a little about it. Did you reject the concept initially? Did you embrace it? Did you understand it? What went on through the process when I threw out your amphora for any particular word? Well, I've come to really love the term amphora. I think it's very useful. But when I first heard it, it was a word I'd never heard before. It's not used very commonly, unless you're an archaeologist or something like that. So when I first heard it, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And I was kind of confused, quite honestly, at first, when I first started learning about that concept of amphora, because it's not something that people spend enough time on, I think. I think that we're in a habit of going to the dictionary definition of a word if we're thinking about what a word means. But mostly, we're taking our belief, our amphora of a word, and assuming or presuming that everybody else believes the same thing, or everybody else has the same amphora, which is not true. And many times, the most successful discussions start out very early in the conversation, getting an understanding of what each other means by the words they're using. And if at any point the conversation hits up against these words that nobody understands, or that it's clear that both commentators don't have a common understanding of, or common amphora for, the conversation can go one of two ways. Either it's going to go off the rails and they're going to talk past each other and it's going to be unproductive. Or one of them is going to have the sense to slow the conversation down, back it up, and get clear on, okay, when we use this word, what are we talking about? So I've seen that play out in many, many different debates and uh, podcasts and conversations that I've consumed. And I never really had a word for it, but this is the word, you know, defining your amphora or finding out what your amphora contains. To me, not understanding the word amphora, not understanding how the amphora plays out in our mind in plays on our relationships causes another place where tension exists. You know, the tension can exist when you have one definition for that word and another person has another definition of that word. Because it really depends on their personal experiences, again, their core beliefs that determine how they respond in every situation. So they carry around this vessel, and for as a vessel, the container, and it contains meaning it's the word for the word metaphor, mm-hmm. which is basically a story that applies to a word. So an amphora is the container for a metaphor. So it's very interesting because when we talk about words matter, you know, you're a wordsmith, like you love words. You constantly are bringing out a word a day in your lexicon. And you constantly add new words into our vocabulary here at the office that make us better. And I think you probably do that in your other relationships as well. Tell me a little bit of why words matter to you so much. Why is that so important that we maybe pay more attention to the words we use and the definitions behind those words? It's important to me because 
I think it's easy for people to get stuck in the habit of using the same language and they'll try to fit a situation or something they're trying to say into their existing use of the English language instead of expanding or looking for a better word or better way to describe it. So the other benefit that you have with uncommonly used words is there's usually a pretty empty amphora. Either a person doesn't really use that word very often, so they don't have a lot of meaning attached to it, or they don't know what the word means at all. So it is literally a brand new word to them. It's an empty amphora. So it gives you the opportunity, if in that situation you use a word that is overused, like love is a word that's overused, then you don't know what you're going to get. But if you get more specific, and unfortunately in the English language, there's not a lot of other words that mean love. But if you get more specific, like maybe admiration would be one. That's a love of a different kind. And it's more specific. It's an uncommonly used word. And when it lands on the ears, if you're talking to somebody who has a good understanding of the English language, that it will hit the emotive points that you're trying to get across, not a baggage that comes along with overused words. So to go back to where we started this conversation, I think making up a new word is a great way to start fresh, start with a clean slate, start with an empty amphora. One of the things that I found was that was a key awareness that you just pointed out, Blake, a key awareness to getting people to understand the application of this concept is giving them permission to create a word or modify a word that allows for an expression of a certain viewpoint. And one of the things that I've always done is the words matter. So I'm not going to let the preconceived notion that people have of certain words get in the way of understanding the direction that I want my message to go. So when I use new words, it allows for the amphora to be created from that word. Just we can make it whatever we want it to be. And it really enhances the conversation. You know, Five or six years ago, maybe a little longer than that now, seven or eight years ago, I never heard of the word amphora in my life either, and I wouldn't know how to apply it in my life. And now, many of my relationships throw that word around in our conversation all the time, and it cuts right to the core of what we want it to be. Now that's really saying is, Blake, I'm in total acceptance of whatever your amphora for that word is. Let's say the word might be faith. I'm totally comfortable with your amphora for that word faith, different from my amphora for that word faith. We have permission to have a more exact definition. Mm -hmm. And then I found it led to more acceptance, more tolerance, more patience, because it stops this mindset of, well, everyone thinks this way, that everything has the same meaning of the word that I just used. Everyone has the same word for anxiety as I have. Everyone has the same definition. No, they don't. Right. And so when I say, Blake, what's your amphora for anxiety? And what's my amphora for anxiety? I can now listen to your amphora for anxiety and totally own my amphora for anxiety. And we can agree to have different amphoras. And it's awesome. Right. 
Think about the value of that in decision-making on top of that, because we're always worried about what other people think and how other people are going to take what we say and that we're going to be judged by it, stuff like that. Well, when you start giving them permission to have a different M4 for the word, it's wonderful. So that's what works for me in the relationships. Hey, Blake, our time is coming to an end. I just want to say thank you for being my guest today. Thank you. I enjoyed it immensely. Again, thank you for joining us today. Join us next week, same time, for Ride the Elephant today. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week. Thank you.